Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. If you're returning, welcome back. Most people in the audience probably have some expectations of what a data science team does. Over the course of this podcast, we've talked about what I imagine are quite a few of those. Building classical data science features like product recommendations, wrangling with classic data science models like customer lifetime value, learning new methods and new skills by reading good data science books, and fulfilling the less flashy but no less essential parts of the job through tasks like data reporting. One thing that isn't in that list, which you probably expected to hear more about, is actively running experiments. Today, we actually have an entire episode devoted to running experiments. We're here to discuss running experiments to try to improve your business. We're joined today by a panel that has a wealth of experience on the topic of running experiments. We're actually going to discuss what that exact team is in just a second, because I think it's essential to understanding why experiments matter so much to you. But I'd like to start with more basic introductions. Could you introduce yourself, who you are, and what role you play on the team? Let's go ahead and start with you, Eric. Thanks. Hey, Michael. Yeah, my name is Eric Gravelin. I'm on the K60 team at Clavio uh, as a lead product designer. Fantastic. And Hannah. Cool. Thanks for having us, Michael. My name is Hannah, and I'm a product analyst working with Eric on the K60 team. That's a good segue to the opening question that we have today. What is the K60 team? Yeah, so that's a team that's really focused on the product onboarding experience. Can somebody get started with Clavio, understand how to use it? take key actions along that journey that they have as a customer that drive value for them, be it generating revenue for their business or just growing their list of subscribers or customers. Uh, we look across their entire journey from sign up through setup, taking that first action. And it's really all about looking at the overall app experience and making sure that customers feel successful using our tool. And that's obviously hugely important. You want your customers to get value in the long term, but you also want them to get there quickly. I imagine this is a problem that not just Clavio has on their mind. So I imagine this is relevant to a lot of people listening to the episode right now. Said a different way, we want to wow our customers by showing them how straightforward and easy it is to get started uh, in under an hour. So K60 is really stands for Clavio in 60. Can they do all these great learning actions in under 60 minutes or within their first session of using our tool? Obviously, involved in that, y'all run a lot of experiments. I'd actually like to start by thinking about a little bit of a philosophical point on experiments. One of the important things about running an experiment is that fundamentally, the point is you're trying to have an effect that you can measure. It's one of the core parts of the entire scientific principle, one of the core parts of experimentation. In a business context, that means you usually have to have a metric that you're trying to move. What are some of the metrics that the K60 team cares about and why do those matter? There are many metrics that we care about um, from very specific con conversion funnel optimizations to qualitative insights that we get by talking directly with as many customers as we can week over week. But I'd say that the metric we refer to the most is something called our K60 milestone metric. This essentially measures how successful our customers have been in the first hour in completing any of those key actions that drive value for them down the road, as I mentioned earlier, the revenue or list growth. Said another way, it's really our account activation metric which we use to gauge how far a customer is down a particular journey and using our tool so that we can understand where the additional opportunities are for them past that phase. Obviously, each experiment is different. Each experiment will have a core metric that it's trying to change. 
which might be something pretty straightforward, like if we're changing our setup wizard, looking at the setup wizard completion rate. But then for a lot of our bigger tasks, we'll look at, as Eric mentioned, that activation metric, to make sure that what we're doing to our users in their first hour and their first day at Clavio is affecting their overall success in the product. Yeah, and that's one of the tricky things that I think people who are not as experienced with running experiments might overlook. It's fundamentally important to pick the right metric. It's fundamentally important to have the right goal. And it doesn't just come from nowhere. You actually have to come up with it. Definitely. And that's one thing the product analytics team is thinking about a lot right now. Not every team has a product analyst working with them. So we're trying to create some kind of frameworks and templates, especially for experimentation, but really for all kinds of feature specs with what metrics should you be defining? How can that experiment or feature relate to your team's goals, as well as what that individual feature is actually driving itself? And all this comes back together too, when you balance these types of quant metrics that we see from product usage, determining the right metric across these various teams and experiments, as Hannah mentioned, um, as well as understanding um, when talking with customers, what are the other things that they're saying about a given experiment that's proposed or that has previously been launched? How are they reacting to it? How would they describe this new experience? You know, is it better? Is it worse? And us taking that opportunity to either take some level of risk, putting something out there with some validation and learning quickly from it and saying, well, can we keep this out there? Is it worthwhile? Is it driving value for that customer? Should we take it back? Should we iterate further? And that really just, that's only scratching the surface. Part of that, what allows us to have as many experiments out there that we do is that ability to quickly get through and iterate based on the metrics that we're looking at. All that qualitative feedback, obviously, as someone who kind of has a background in statistics, we were really trained that the quantitative feedback is king. And in some ways it is. It's, it makes things very nice to have quantitative numbers. But the qualitative feedback really does matter so much because it can give you context on why the number is what it is if you do truly care about the number very deeply. I think one example that we ran into with an experiment that we ran recently is we kind of asked people, you know, explain why you gave this the rating that you gave it on a scale of one to five. And looking through the CSV, you could just see some people like, oh, they gave it a one. Oh, no, that's terrible. Why did they give it a one? Explanation, hate, change, literally two words. A very common sentiment you'll hear, change aversion. This is different. Uh, what do I do next with this? Uh, there's some margin of error, I think, in some respects to that. But making sure that you understand where it's coming from uh, is vital in picking the certain tests that we want to run or how far we want to push the envelope for any given change. I also think instances like that show why quantitative data is also so important because someone might say they hate change, but then convert at a much higher rate. So even though their qualitative data saying they hate change, if the numbers are actually showing they're more successful or they're upgrading to a higher billing plan or sending more emails and getting more engagement from their customers, they may quote unquote hate change, but in reality, that change is a huge win. So it is important to marry the two. But at the end of the day, figure out kind of what is actually working for your customers. And even though they might not think they like what they're doing, they might be more successful in getting to those things much faster, which is usually a win for all of our customers. Yeah, great point. How core is experimentation to the workflow in K60? What do you think, Anna? I think we, we do this all the time. There's so Very much experimentation. Important. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. it, almost everything we, we ship, Michael, has some way, shape, or form an experiment. So it's critical. It's really the primary tool that we use to improve our product experience. We feel like it's one of the best ways to measure how those changes are impacting a certain customer's journey, balancing 
this quant and qualitative standpoints uh, that we just talked about is it's huge. Gauging reactions to change is also a big part of that too. So having the ability to talk about experiments before we launch them and follow up after we do, engage that reaction that customer has is vital as part of this. And, and then when we say that we do everything as an experiment to varying degrees, everything that this team has shipped uh, has started as an experiment, has been iterated through many different times before we determined, hey, this is in good shape. What else can we uh, do that has a high uh, value for our customers? Yeah, experimentation is definitely key. My background prior to being at Clavio is helping large enterprise organizations test at a more organizational scale. When I came to Clavio, K62 is one of the few teams testing and they're really in the early days of it. Now I think we run 17 experiments as of June 2021, which is more than we ran in all of 2020. So it's been really exciting to see how Clavio has expanded its experimentation. No longer just the K60 team, it's the forums team, it's the SMS team, it's the science team. So it's been great to see how experimentation has really been evangelized within K60, but also beyond K60. And will keep being a method and a way of learning about our customers in a really strong, quantitative, robust way to isolate behavior and attribute it to the changes in the platform itself. On that note, since you run so many experiments and they're so core to the workflow, is there such a thing as a typical experiment for your team? If so, what does it look like? Outside of following a, a pretty rigorous method, you know, make sure we have a, a problem statement, make sure that we state a good hypothesis, right? We believe this, a prediction that follows suit. If we did this, to prove whether or not that hypothesis is correct. And then the method itself. So this rigor that we get to that, okay, well, who's going to see this experiment? Talking with Hannah, right? What's the volume of traffic that sees a certain page? Let's say we're trying to iterate. With that volume, how long would it take for us to understand whether or not this change that we make works better as like a 50-50 split test experiment, uh, as a multivariant test where multiple uh, you know, treatments involved? and run for a given amount of time that can determine whether or not this is a significant change. The data looks good. We can concretely prove that this change that we made, hopefully usually pretty minor to isolate, you know, not change everything for a given experiment, is working. And if so, let's launch it more broadly, up the, the traffic um, or, you know, revisit it, take a step back, look at what we learned about it uh, and go from there. Of course, every experiment is different, but at the same time, they share a lot of commonalities. The two big things are that at its core experimentation cycle, so it starts with ideating and designing, which might come from an idea, might come from a customer request, might come from the support team suggesting something, it might come from a bug that we're trying to fix and resolve a team effort. And this is that other component that every experiment shares, which is a really strong sense of team collaboration. So during the spec review process, it involves everyone from the engineers to the designers to the analytics team, sometimes looping in sales or support or success as well, depending on what part of the platform it's touching. From there, as the experiment goes live, which obviously takes a lot of work to get there and lots of finalizations and reviews and, again, looking at it as a team, I'll come in towards the end with the measurement perspective. So teasing out between our two cohorts or even more sometimes treatment versus control, getting that read on what's happening. You know, in a lot of ways, no experiment is ever really over. There's typically a lot of iteration. So you might have an experiment. It might be a huge win. It might be a huge loss. But either way, you're learning from it. And from there, there's always a next step. It might be roll it out to everyone. It might be roll it out to no one. And let's not put this in the product. But either way, there's a learning. And there might be, this is a win, but we're still going to keep iterating and changing things and moving forward. You know, one experiment we did last fall, 12 iterations. So that was a really kind of step-by-step -step 
experiment with really 12 experiments nested within it, where every step of the way was learning and collaboration and really going through that experimentation cycle. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind. The fact that you don't prove your hypothesis does not mean that you have learned nothing. It's not a failure of an experiment. You have gained knowledge and gaining knowledge is always good because it helps you experiment better in the future, if nothing else. I think there's a saying in scientific research, which is, you know, no results are results. I would say in a sense, this is kind of the product experiment idea of that no results in an experiment that you're running in your business or in your product are still results because they teach you, if nothing else, we don't need to do the thing that we thought we had to do. We often want and would love for all of our experiments and tests to win and these new ideas to be always be the best ideas possible. But first of all, that definitely doesn't happen. And second of all, I would say when that doesn't happen and when you design something and build something and it flops, that's in a lot of ways a much bigger learning because that totally contradicts what you thought about your customers. And you thought you're designing something they wanted, you designed something they didn't want, which shows you so much about how they interact, how they behave, what their assumptions are about how product works a lot of the time. So in some ways, the losses are such bigger wins for learning. So you briefly touched on the sign-up form experiment. We chatted a little bit before this episode. There were two particular experiments we wanted to dig deeper into. I'd like to start basic here. What was the context for that series of experiments and what problem were you trying to solve? Very simply, if you looked at it from a measuring standpoint, we looked at a sign-up form that did not have a high success rate of people getting through that form. So you start there. Okay, here's the catalyst. What's going on in this form? You know, why is this uh, a low converting form? What's happening before and afterwards from this step in the journey? So we take a step back and we say, okay, what's the customer doing? In this particular instance, they're in Shopify, maybe set up a store already. They're looking to utilize the Clavio integration and they get as far as understanding that we're going to share data between the two services. They're comfortable to now connect our API and our platform to Shopify. They get to the screen that says, okay, allow, connect to Klaviyo. And then they arrive on this page, which problem number one, it didn't match our overall brand aesthetic at the time. What we were saying, how we kind of presented ourselves, those didn't line up initially. Number two, this form had upwards of eight to nine different fields associated with it. Many of them were being pre-populated with some data that Shopify was sharing with Klaviyo. The third thing, unfortunately, usability errors with that form, validation stuff, things that, you know, long hanging fruit for a lot of respects, but we, we knew that there's an opportunity to change that. So we take all that, knowing we can improve this, knowing that there's a high intent, the customer's already done those other steps to get to this page. What can we do long-term here? What does great look like here? What can we do? You know, spend some time designing, collaborating with engineering product, with uh, analytics, and putting out, okay, this is what would be great for this page, right? Shiny vision, a concept, let's build this. Now, the change here is instead of going off and building that shiny new space, that concept, we broke it down by those different problems I outlined earlier. What can we do systematically to rule out or prove that, hey, this will improve the conversion rate and or customer's experience through this? So from there, we started with very simply, let's update that look and feel. Let's change this page, not the functionality of it, but this look and feel to match our brand. We did that change. We ran this experiment for a week or two. And this is a good example of what we were just talking about. 
we got essentially like a flatline result. It wasn't a big dip in the people who were submitting this. It wasn't a giant increase, but essentially told us even with this style change, that wasn't going to have an effect on whether or not people are successful or not. However, we knew as designers and as a product team, like, hey, this is in fact better and aligns for a brand. Let's go with the new version. Let's take that change. And from there, tackle the next thing. Let's reduce these fields. So it's a whole new experiment now. We're going to reduce this friction that a user would perceive and actually experience through this. Reduce all those eight to nine fields down to two, the bare minimum to get you up and running while still capturing a lot of stuff in the background. And it's from there that we saw a huge increase, a giant. Wow, this is a great win. We reduce all this friction and see what happens. And here comes the benefit of having analytics on our team. Hannah spent some time looking at the data and we learned some pretty interesting uh, aspects about that test. For starters, it's worth noting that our success metric for this test was who was hitting the CTA or the call to action button, which in this case had something like submit or create account. As Eric said, we reduced our fields from mine, which meant our only two fields were a username and a password, which if you picture that in your head, it looks a lot like a login form. So what we realized was happening was in the old world, users would land on a sign-up form, see it, and then click the little login button at the top in the subheader. Now they're landing on a form with two fields, username and password, and a lot of existing users were filling out this form as a login form. So when we were looking at just the submit rate of the form, as Eric said, it was a huge increase. For a second, a huge win, where we were like, wow, we can almost double the conversions here. But it sounds too good to be true, and it's because it was too good to be true. Further investigation showed us that a lot of existing users were using this form as login form, entering existing accounts, but not creating new accounts. So this required a bit of a deeper dive, where we looked at of who was submitting the form, were these new accounts being created or existing accounts being logged into. So it required some kind of data mining and cleaning out the results to see what was actually happening. We then narrowed it down more granularly into new users creating new accounts. We still saw a pretty big increase about a relative 20% lift in that submit rate. It wasn't as extreme as we saw before, but it still was a win. But in that case, it was really good that A, we learned about our users. We were there hitting this form and using it as a login form. And then we also did learn that for new users to see fewer fields, they were submitting it at a higher rate. So it was both learning about our existing users and kind of got the juices flowing on our brains thinking about how can we make that experience better in the future, as well as realizing two fields for new users is better. And from there, that really led to about 10 more iterations on the copy. So on the language on that form, changing what was in the green button, saying sign up now, create account, create free account, as well as the language above the form. And we landed on what we think is a pretty nice design. It's more accurate, more personalized, more inviting to new users signing up for Clavio for the first time. Very nice. So one thing that I think we're hearing here that's important to keep in mind with research, especially when you're running an experiment, is why. A big part of why is where you eventually end up once you've run your experiment, and in this case, the experiment's follow-up, and that experiment's follow-up, and so on. What did you ultimately end up learning from this series of experiments? Oh, man, uh, lots of different learnings. Simple copy editing can have a huge impact on what you're saying. We had a primary call to action that said, get started. Pretty simple. I'm going to set up my account and go. We tried one that said, create free account. 
that did not do very well in this context. Not saying that that's like, that's the hard, fast rule, but in this case, it was surprising to us. Spending time with copy, understanding what you're writing, being clearly communicated through that. That was many of our experiments uh, and iterations through that. The reason why there's so many of the experiments is because we had very small changes isolated, as we mentioned earlier, like little bit, like it's so important to not just make giant changes because that's just going to open yourself up to like, well, what is driving this new result? X is a Y or a Z, all these new things on this page, limiting the copy, the CTA button, specific form validation and pieces like all these are just very small little micro cuts that we, we tested along the way, making sure that the audience is of a good size. We understand what the volume of traffic is. How can we split this? How do we learn and get a statistical significant number? In this case, as fast as possible. Learn quickly, iterate faster. It's super important in this context. And also, as I said earlier, learning a lot about user behavior. So we didn't expect existing users to check this page's login form. Now we know that's a huge use case for this landing page, which means we can now better craft the experience given we know that's a behavior that is pretty prevalent. So I would say, you know, as Eric mentioned, we learned a lot about copy, a lot about number of fields, a lot about color scheme. We've taken some of that into other sign-up forms we have in Clavio, which kind of was nice to skip a lot of the steps along the way, as well as just user behavior and understanding more about our customers. This would have been hard to figure out via customer interviews, given how you access Clavio isn't always a question we're asking. We're asking more about what are you doing in Clavio? Something we didn't expect to learn, but did along the way, which is always great. Right. Just it showed us so many other opportunities where we can apply our learnings and, and feel confident that, hey, we learned something significant here and we can go iterate over here uh, without spending more legwork or design time to do that. By taking these learnings that we've had, it informs upcoming design choices differently. We're talking about the sign up form that led to a lot of discovery and ideation from the concept phase about how we handle multi-account setup and creation in our product. Now that we know that this path exists for users coming from Shopify App Store specifically, how can we understand what they're seeing to give something better for them? People like me who kind of came from a somewhat academic environment probably are a little surprised to hear exactly how complex things got and exactly the types of things that you learned from that one. So I'm glad we ran through that. There was actually another experiment uh, when we talked that we wanted to discuss, which was the forms empty state experiment. My guess is our audience might've had a reasonable guess what that last set of experiments was from the name, but that might be less true here. What was the context for this experiment and what problems were you trying to solve here? Yeah, so for this one, while we're looking at a very specific piece of functionality uh, in our product, further down that customer journey right now, we're well beyond sign up and set up. Let's see what actions we can drive that will bring value for that customer. So in this case, we have a feature uh, called signup forms that allows customers to embed or have a pop-up flyout form on their store in order to gain more subscribers for those who sign up through email or through SMS. In this case, looking at product usage, we uncovered that for many people who visit this area of our product, they're not actually starting down this path. They're not hitting that button that says, okay, let's create this signup form. So there's an opportunity here. What are we presenting to them? create a sign-up form, but also lots of language around getting set up, configuring that form, you know, placing this code snippet on your site. So in this case, we took this tact where we predicted that if we could provide some better education and or guidance through our language, the things that they see on this page, perhaps we can get them to at least start down this path. Now, what's interesting about this one is that we ran it 
three options we had going at one time. One, which was the experience that people had been seeing for a while. One that was a, you know, here's this new empty state, so to speak, this new landing page that talks about forms, gives some education, links to help uh, understand watching videos, visiting our support hub. And the third one, which was like, if you hit this page, you're just going to get going. We're going to accelerate you into the tool. Very interesting. So you have these three options. What were some of the reasons why you had the three options? Kind of what, why were these two alternatives, particular alternatives that you pursued? We had our existing empty state. Empty state being what you land on when you first click on sign up forms in the Clayview app when you have no sign up forms already set up. That older empty state said either create a form or install a code snippet. Installing a code snippet actually isn't required for a lot of our customers if they have certain integrations. And actually, the majority of our customers don't need to do that. So first of all, we we're trying to drop that entire functionality, especially so early on, it's a little bit intimidating. So in our two, one of them was a fully redesigned, kind of much shinier, prettier, empty state. Again, drop that create code snippet bit and embedded a video on the home screen so people kind of watch what forms are before they dive into it. And then how to getting started experience where they can more quickly filter down to templates they're going to want to select from later on. So that was our first variation. Our second variation was actually skipping the empty state altogether and entering the forms template library. So with this, you land on a page with a bunch of tiles. Each tile is an example of a form. So it both shows users kind of what forms actually are. A lot of users and probably a lot of listeners think of forms as pop-ups. So if you're on an e-commerce website shopping, maybe for three seconds, maybe you scroll 10% down the screen, You'll get a pop-up saying, hey, want free shipping for your first order? Enter your email and or phone number here. That's what we call sign-up forms. So this was showing our users kind of what those are, how they can look. And also, of course, we're moving one step of the process. In reality, that second example wouldn't have gone through fully for everyone because empty states are kind of the consistent thing within Klaviyo. You should always hit one when you reach a new part of the product for the very first time. But with that, it was more testing out a theory in a lightweight effort, seeing if users would be excited about the opportunity and excited and kind of learning by seeing templates so early on in the process. So instead of requiring them to go through a click and a complicated screen at first, if you drop them in a place where they can see templates right away, will that encourage them to create more forms or create their first form much faster and more reliably? The big hypotheses here, where one of them is, can we clean up this empty state, make it look prettier, which is therefore a better user experience? And secondly, we're testing the hypothesis, will customers be more successful if they can see templates so much earlier in the process? What were the results? What did users end up saying based on what they did in the product? In the good news, this is kind of a good win for us. Those treatments very much beat the goal, both in terms of engagement on the empty state as well as the percent of users who published a form in their first seven days. So those were both a pretty nice win. They actually were tied with each other for the most part in terms of which one was better, which made it pretty easy for us to decide to go through with the one that was the more standard and prettier and more full empty state. As I said earlier, like we should have an empty state. So it was nice that that was still performing so well, but also the other treatment that also performed really highly was a good example of fully visualizing, contextualizing, what am I actually building right now? They are more likely to be successful. So while that isn't what we moved forward with at the time, it's a good learning that if we can incorporate templates or 
previews of what people might build that should and might and could help them be successful later on. And as I said earlier, no experiment's really ever over. New forms MD state from that experiment is now live, but also being iterated on. So that was the winner at the time. I don't think that's even what's live today anymore, two months later. So the onsite team or the forms team has taken that under their wings and run with it. Yeah, and not to mention that that new state, that new layout from a design perspective and a language standpoint, we're going off and using it in different spots now, like custom reporting, flows areas. We'll have some experiments running soon. So there's a lot of different things that all come into our design system, which inform just a better product experience that's uh, consistent, cohesive, and understood, ideally, by everyone who uses it. Obviously, at this point, y'all are pretty seasoned at running experiments that involve customers and user experience in a live setting. Some of our listeners may not be, but I'd actually like to address them very directly here. What advice would you give someone who's just starting out with running experiments that involve customers live in their product? That's a great question. As the data person here, as the person who owns the success metrics, I would say get that basic knowledge of A-B testing and statistics. I use Evan Miller a pretty good amount in his website, which can help with sample sizing before a test, as well as helping get that measurement of, I have two cohorts, who's performing better. One thing we haven't touched on a ton so far, but has been sprinkled throughout is statistical significance, which is a really important way to measure a test. Sometimes you'll see a result and you don't know if it's noise or if it's a signal and significance can help tease out, is this a signal or is it noise? So I would say having those basics at least for the person owning the test, critical so that you can measure it reliably and be sure that the changes you're making are real and not just noise that you got lucky with. It is a tricky thing running these live tests. I typically say, as I mentioned earlier, like we have this vision, right? We know what we wanna get to. Finding the right small cuts that progress that you can learn from and get to that vision is so important. And doing so from a design standpoint where it can feel different, but recognizable, right? If a user sees something brand new, it should be intuitive for them. It shouldn't be a drastic change that's unannounced and like, oh, you know, what the heck am I looking at now? That's important when working with live audiences. Another thing I would add is that it's important to know when to test. One thing I think of at Clavio, one thing I thought a lot about in my past job was you want to be testing when it's high risk, high reward. We're thinking about that matrix. Something that's low risk, you probably just should just do it. Something low reward, you probably shouldn't do it. It doesn't matter. So really thinking about, I'm testing something that I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it does matter what happens. As well as from the test, I can actually measure and isolate the changes. Something that's very hard to test would be like a color scheme change. Like that would probably be throughout the entire product, affect a lot of user experience. And also something like a color scheme change, what effect are you trying to bring about? Like that's less of a clear and direct metric being affected. So you wanna make sure that what you're changing, you know exactly what should be changing as a result of future change. If you're moving a button, you're probably gonna measure button clicks. So making sure that you're testing something that's worthwhile to test, Make sure it's worth it and make sure you're going to get a really clean read from it. 
It's important when you're doing these tests, you have a couple different levels of testing, right? You can have really big swings, like drastic changes that you want to really test that hypothesis or prediction for. And then these little ones that are a lot of the ones that we have done have been these little minor changes that we've talked about earlier. For the big stuff, yeah, make sure that it is worthwhile of an endeavor to get down that path. And for the little stuff, when it comes to the users and how they perceive the product, how they use it, make sure you're guiding them in a way that's not introducing more friction, like little subtle changes here and there. If you do a lot of them, you'll get to a place uh, that is ideally better for that customer. Another thing that we think about, like not just in the product, but as a team, we're talking a lot about experimentation, the K60 team and how we operate has been a pretty big experiment in itself. We've iterated in how we work through things, how we solve problems, how do, where's our starting point, when's the right time to tackle an experiment, how big is our team or how small can our team be to, to tackle these things? What kind of documentation do we need to write? Who do we bring into the room with us? Well, a virtual room in this, at this point, uh, to talk through these things, understand how it affects other teams, other plans that they have, what experiments they might be trying. Iterating as a team is such a big part of this K60 kind of experimental uh, mindset. That level of collaboration, talking with designers and engineers and product and analytics is a very good combination. Put forth some pretty worthwhile tests in any, any product that listeners may be looking to iterate through. And that is it for the episode this month. Thank you to Hannah and Eric for being on. I hope everyone in the audience learned a lot from you. This episode, as all episodes are, was sponsored by Clavio. If you're interested in learning more about Clavio, we empower creators to own their own destiny. You can learn more at Clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast. We're available on just about every major podcast distribution network. Please also consider rating us five stars or leaving us a review on whatever podcast distribution network you use. That helps us show up to other people so that they can hear the podcast too. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, the best person to reach is me. The best place to reach me is Twitter. My handle there is at Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's at L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thanks for joining us. Have a good month.